If you haven't already, open uh, to that passage to Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26, through the end of the chapter. As we said uh, earlier, this is uh, coming right after Peter has healed uh, this man who was born lame. This man that they encountered as they were heading into the temple to pray. They, They encountered him because he was there every day. We're told that his friends would come and lay him there at the beautiful gate every day to to ask for alms, to ask for for a little bit of change, a little bit of money, something to help him buy his daily bread, something to to help him buy the the clothing that he he needed to uh, survive the the winter. And as as Peter and John walked into the temple, they they looked at him. They, They saw him as a man, but they had no silver and gold to give to him. But they did give him what they had. We're told that they said to him, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately this this man who had been born lame, this this man who had been uh, sitting at the beautiful gate day after day for as long as anyone could remember, this man stood up and began to leap and, and walk and praise God for what he had done. And here in the second part of chapter 3, we we see the rest of the story. We we see what happens next. And there are really four scenes in the second half of this chapter. First, we see the the people astounded. They are amazed at what has happened. And then we we see Peter addressing them. We we see Peter addressing the crowd that has gathered together. Then we see him challenging that crowd. And finally, we see the people respond to Peter's challenge. Now this morning, we're only going to have time to look at the first two of those, but we're going to to look at the people astounded, the people amazed at what they've seen. And then we're going to see how Peter addresses them. So let's begin with the people's amazement. We we see it there in verse 11. Notice what Luke writes. He says, he, that is this man who had been healed, he clung to Peter and John, and all the people ran to them in the portico called... Solomon's astounded. They they ran to him uh, amazed at what they had seen. They were amazed because this man had been lame for as long as they could remember. And yet now here he was before them walking and leaping and, and praising God so that Luke says in verse chapter 10 they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And we need to see their amazement because their amazement is significant. Last week we said that the apostles' miracles and uh, the, the miracles of Jesus before them, that, that these miracles were more than wonders. They were, they were more than mere displays of, of supernatural power. They were signs. They, they were pictures of the salvation proclaimed in Jesus' name. When, when Jesus used his power to heal, or when the apostles used their power to heal, they weren't just doing a trick. They were, they were doing an act of salvation. They were, they were putting on display the good news that they came to proclaim because salvation equals health. 
That's what we've seen in our confession of faith even this morning, that God's plan of redemption is a plan to make all things new. God's plan of redemption is a plan to, to restore all things to that original goodness that he intended. All that has been put right, all that has been bent out of shape, all that has been polluted and, and perverted is going to be made new, is going to be restored. It will be put right. As we will sing during the Advent season, God's blessings will flow as far as the curse is found. This is the salvation that is proclaimed in Jesus' name. It is a, it is a salvation of new creation. It is a salvation of health. It is a, it is a salvation of things put right. And we need to know that, we, we need to understand that, we need to see in the apostles' miracles this, this picture of salvation. But at the same time, while the apostles' miracles are more than mere wonders, we need to recognize that they are wonders. They are amazing displays of, of supernatural power. And it's important for us to understand that because these displays of supernatural power serve a very specific purpose. These displays of, of supernatural power, these displays of, of God's power at work to, to make things new, these displays publicly validate the one through whom they come. When the apostles work these miracles, God is putting his stamp on them. God is saying, this is my chosen instrument. And I don't think the significance of this can be overstated for our day. The question that we often hear today is simply the question that, that Daniel was asking the, the children. Who are you to say? Who are you to say, who, who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to tell me what to believe? It is, it is a question we, we get constantly today. The, the question of authority is, in, in my opinion, the foundational apologetic question of our day. It's a, it's a question that we hear all the time. It's a question that we hear with respect to so much of the, of the church's teaching. We, we often associate it with, with ethics, with, with the things that the church says we are to do, with the, the practices that we are to follow. We think especially in our day of, of the, the sexual ethic that is taught by uh, the scriptures, this idea that God created man and woman in his own image and that, that he gave them to each other and that sexuality is to be expressed within a marriage covenant and nowhere else. The world constantly challenges this, asking us, who are you to say? Who are you to tell me what I can do with my body? But of course it also applies to the church's doctrines. When we tell them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved, they want to know, who are you to say? Who are you to tell me how I'm supposed to relate to God or this higher power or the, the force, whatever it is they believe in? Who are you to tell me who God is? Who are you to tell me what he approves of? Who are you to tell me how I can relate to him? It is the question of our age. And I want you to understand that it is precisely the right question. It is the right question to ask. Why should I, or, or why should anyone else in the church, 
Why should we have the authority to tell people what they are supposed to believe or, or what they are supposed to do? Certainly, we enjoy it when people make suggestions. Just go to the bookstore. There are all kinds of books there that can give you advice on any number of topics. They, they can tell you how to parent. They can tell you, tell you how to relate to teens. They can tell you how to get ahead in business. They can tell you how to be more productive. They can tell you how to organize your desk. There are all kinds of books out there that can tell you all kinds of things, and we love it when people give us their advice. It's why the blogosphere exists. We, we want people's opinions. We, we want to hear, but, but we always stand as the final arbiter of truth. We always stand as the one who decides what we will use, what we will believe, what we will put into practice. We want to hear their ideas, but we want to be free to decide for ourselves, and we Resist firmly when anyone seeks to tell us what we must believe or what we must do. Why should they have the authority to impose their views on us or on anyone else? And it is the right question. Because the truth is, I am nobody. I am a man just like you. I have no authority in myself. I have no right to, to dictate to anyone about anything. Whatever authority I have as a pastor is exclusively a derived authority. We say that the authority that pastors have is, is declarative and ministerial. They can declare what the Word of God says. They can minister the Word of God to people, but they have no authority in themselves. Whatever authority I have as a pastor, whatever authority the elders of this church have, whatever authority any pastor in any church has, it is an authority that rests entirely upon the authority of scriptures. We have authority only in so far as we are ministering the word. But of course, that just pushes the question one step down the road. Why should the scriptures have any authority? Why should, should these ancient documents have any authority to, to tell us what we must believe or what we must do? If they're written by men, why did the men who wrote them have any authority? That's the question. It's a good question. It is the, the right question. And so what we must see is that the scriptures have authority because the apostles have authority. The scriptures are, are endued with the authority of the apostles themselves. It's not that all the scriptures were written specifically by apostles. We're in the book of Acts. Acts was written by Luke. Luke wasn't an apostle. But these are the scriptures that come out of the apostolic community. These are the, the scriptures that, that represent the, the treasure of apostol the apostolic faith once for all delivered to the saints. And they come to us with the authority of the apostles. But again, we've just pushed it one step farther down the road. Why do the apostles have any authority? And here we come to our answer. The apostles have authority because they were given authority by Jesus himself. It was Jesus who picked his apostles. Remember, we saw that all the way back in chapter 1, that when Matthias needed, or when uh, Judas needed to be replaced, 
The church did not presume to appoint his replacement, but rather they said, here's what an apostle is. It's someone who's been with us from the beginning who can serve as a witness. Jesus, tell us who you want. And Jesus picks Judas's replacement. Jesus selects Matthias to be the twelfth apostle. Because apostles are appointed by Jesus himself to speak with Jesus' authority. And we know that the apostles have this authority because God has publicly validated them by working through them these signs and wonders. These signs and wonders demonstrate that this is someone who comes to us authorized by God to speak. Because there's no way that the apostles do these miracles in their own power. They do them in the power of God, and God gives them that power to demonstrate that they are the ones who speak for him. This is exactly the point that that Peter is making when when he tells the peoples that their awe is misplaced. Look again at verse 12. And when Peter saw it, when he, when he saw the astounded crowd, he, said, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And we need to understand that, that Peter is not saying, there's nothing to see here. He, he's not saying, why are you amazed? Nothing amazing has happened. There, there's no big deal here. He's not denying the supernatural event. That's that's what modern uh, scholars tend to do. They they tend to try to explain away the uh, the miracles. They they tend to try to come up with natural explanations. That is not at all what Peter is doing. There is no natural explanation for a man born lame now walking and and leaping and praising God. This is a supernatural healing. This is a miracle in every sense of the word. And we need to acknowledge it as such. And we know that Peter acknowledges that such because he tells us in the in the very next verse that that he know he recognizes that this man has been made well this man now stands before them in perfect health he's not saying that that nothing amazing has happened he is saying that their amazement is misplaced he says why do you stare at us Why do you stare at us as though by our power and piety we had made this man well? He's saying we didn't do this in and of ourselves. This isn't something that that we have the power to do. It's not something we have the piety to make God do. You see, they don't have the power in themselves. There is is no one among us who can can make a a man born lame walk. We we do not have that power. The, the, The wonders of modern medicine are just that. They are wonders, but they are limited. This is this is not 21st century medicine in the first century. This is a miracle. A miracle that that they could not possibly do on their own. Nor could they compel God to do it by their own piety. These are not such holy men that somehow God owes them, that somehow God is in their debt, that somehow God can control them. Uh, this This is not the chosen one controlling the force. They have no piety in themselves that that places them above God, that places God in their debt, that that makes God obey their commands. They are simply ordinary men just like us. They they are not superheroes. They're, They're not even the elite. They are simply ordinary men through whom God has chosen to work. 
That is the point. God has chosen these men. God has chosen them to be His instruments. God is now at work through them. And He is at work through them in these supernatural, miraculous ways so that we will know these are the people who speak to us the very words of God. There's something in us that longs to hear God's voice. There there is something in us that wants God to speak. Well, God has spoken. He has spoken. The question is, are we listening? You see, that's why the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching not because the apostles were extraordinary Uh, teachers in themselves, not because they had extraordinary insights in themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because it was through the apostles that God was speaking. And if you want to hear the voice of God, if you want to be filled with the knowledge of God, if you want the the wisdom of God to, to saturate your very being so that you can walk in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake, devote yourself to the apostles' teaching because here God speaks. And we know that God speaks because he publicly validated the apostles. He placed their identity beyond reasonable doubt. And therefore, it is upon that foundation that we receive their words as the very words of God. We need to know this. We, we need to know that these are the men whom Jesus chose and whom Jesus empowered, whom Jesus authorized to speak for him. But of course, at this point, someone could say, you've just really pushed it down one step further. Why Jesus? Why are we listening to Jesus? Why, why does Jesus have the power to give his authority to the apostles. If the apostles' authority comes from Jesus, then then we need to know why Jesus has authority to entrust it to them. And that is exactly the question that Peter begins to address as he begins to address this astounded crowd. Notice how he progresses. He begins by, by telling them that it is the God of Abraham who glorified Jesus. Do you see it there? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Jesus didn't show up out of the blue. He he showed up at the end or at the climax of of a very long story. Peter invokes the name of Abraham's God. He invokes the name of Isaac's God, of Jacob's God, the God of their their forefathers, because he is saying that Jesus came as the fulfillment of a very long story. And this matters for for at least two reasons. It it matters to us for at least two reasons, because first, if you think about it, a, a true religion cannot be a new religion. A a human philosophy can be new. Human beings can come up with new ways to to work in the world, to make sense in the world, to live their best lives in the world now. They, They can come up with something new. But if the God who made heaven and earth is telling us his story, his story must begin at the beginning. He doesn't show up in the middle of a scene. 
He doesn't show up after the story has, has already begun. He is the foundation and the beginning of all things. Therefore, his story must be from the beginning. And therefore, if Christianity is going to be true in the way that the apostles tell us it's true, in the way that Jesus tells us it's true, as the cosmic true story of all things, as the cosmic true story of the one true and living God, then it must be a story that begins at the beginning. And by invoking the name of Abraham, the apostles are reminding us that Jesus shows up as the climax of the one true God's story. The, the story of the one who made heaven and earth. The story of the one who called Abraham out of Ur. The story of the one who has been working with his people from the very beginning. But secondly, not only does, does reminding us that that Jesus is the servant of Abraham's God, not only does it remind us that, that he is the climax of a, of a very old story, a story that stretches back all the way to the beginning, it also reminds us that the God of Abraham is a God who keeps his promises. He is a God who is faithful to his word. You see, when God called Abraham, he, he made promises, and those promises were, were repeated and, and reiterated to one generation after another, often expanded in, in, in glorious, almost inconceivable ways. And yet, in the first century, as the, as the people of Israel languished under Roman rule, it seemed to many that those promises had long since been forgotten. People wondered whether, whether God was really ever going to do all the things that he claimed he was going to do. His people had been abandoned. His people had been left in exile. His people had been left under foreign oppression. It's been 400 years. Can we really believe the promises? Just as a preview, that's really what the season of Advent is all about. Next Sunday, we'll, we'll begin the season of Advent. We'll sing of the long-expected Jesus. That's what Advent is all about. That longing that comes from wondering, is God ever going to do what he promised to do? Jesus is the proof that God is faithful. Jesus is the demonstration that God keeps his promises. Jesus comes as the one declaring that God has not forgotten, that God will not leave his work unfinished. And that matters to us today because we, we're still waiting. During the Advent season, not only do we remember the longing of the Old Testament people of God, but we remember our own longing for God to bring to completion the good work which he has begun in Jesus Christ. Not only do we remember them looking forward to, to Jesus' first coming, but we enter fully into the angst of, of our waiting for Jesus to come again and to bring to completion that story of the making of all things new. All you have to do is look around to know that day is not yet. Clearly, we do not live in a day where things have been put right. Clearly, we live in a day where, where the curse still uh, pollutes and perverts and bends out of shape. Clearly, we live in a day where, where injustices and oppression still happen. And we long for the day when our weeping will be no more. We long for the day when our groaning will be silenced. We long for the day when we will be able to rejoice with joy inexpressible. Because all things have been made new. 
That's what the Advent season is all about. And Jesus is the guarantee that that day is coming. Because the gift of Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners demonstrates that God will bring to completion the good work that he has begun. If he did not spare his own son, but put him forward as the sacrifice for our sins, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so the first thing that that Peter says here is that Jesus is the servant of Abraham's God. He is the servant of the God of our forefathers. He is the servant of the one true and living God. The one who has authority because he, he made all things. The one who has authority because he called all things into existence by the word of his power. This is the one who speaks to us through Jesus. Through his servant, Jesus. The very one whom they had denied, the very one whom they had crucified, the one, very one whom they had handed over to be, to be tortured and, and put to death. Jesus of Nazareth. He is God's servant. And we may not hear how significant a title that is because we are not as familiar with those Old Testament prophecies as, as the people of Israel would have been in the first century. To hear Peter say that Jesus was was the servant of God is to hear him say that he is the one who comes to fulfill all the promises. Turn with me quickly to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42. I don't have time to expound on these texts this morning, but I want you to hear them. I want you to hear what the prophets said about the servant of God. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning at verse 1. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And how will he do this? Will he do it by by rolling in on on the back of a mighty tank? No, not at all. Notice what he says. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He will bring justice and he will do it in such a way that the weak remain unharmed, that the weak are actually rescued. They will not be collateral damage of his, of his conquering, but they will be redeemed and rescued. Not even a bruised reed will be broken. This is the servant of the Lord. This is who Jesus is. He, he speaks of him again in, in chapter 49. Turn just a few pages over. He says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. It will appear as if he has wasted himself. It will appear as if his, his work was in vain. And yet, 
He says, surely my right is with the Lord. My recompense is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Uh, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength, he says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back Israel, uh, uh, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. The servant of God, the the servant who comes to, to rescue Israel will not only rescue Israel, but he will bring salvation even to the end of the earth. This is the servant of God. This is who Jesus is. And maybe most famously at all, we read of this servant in Isaiah 52 and and 53. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, he says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which he has not been, for that which they have not been told, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what we have heard from us? And to whom? Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like the root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is the servant of the Lord, despised by men, a man of sorrows, and yet... Surely, he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. For we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This is the servant of God. The one who will be crushed. The one who will know deep sorrow and anguish. The one who will seemingly fail. And yet the one through whom God will accomplish all his purposes. This is Jesus. This is the one long foretold. This is the Savior who will make all things new. This is what Peter wants them to see. Peter says, listen, I don't do this in my own power and piety. I I do this as a servant of Jesus, and Jesus is the servant of the living God. He is the one who comes to bring to completion all the good work that God has begun. It is in him that all of God's promises find their yes and amen. But again, the question is, how do we know? How do we know that Jesus is the servant? Peter says it plainly. Because God glorified him. God raised him up from the dead. The very one whom you betrayed. The very one whom you handed over to be crucified. The very one who was was flogged and left for dead. and The one who was hanged upon the cross. The one who died upon that cross. The one who was buried in the ground. This very one, 
God glorified by raising him up. And when he glorified him, when he raised him to life, he demonstrated beyond all reasonable doubt that this is my servant. This is my son. He is the one in whom all my promises find their fulfillment. By his resurrection, the God of Abraham, the promise-keeping God, showed Jesus to be the one through whom all his promises would be fulfilled. He showed Jesus to be the one through whom peace and justice would come, through whom we would have our healing. And it's why Peter says, That it was not through our power or our piety, but it was through faith in His name. Faith in the glorified servant. That this man has been made well. And that is the foundation. That is the essence of the gospel that we rest upon this morning. It is in that gospel that we gather before God this morning. We gather here as people made new. As people who were dead in our sins made alive together with Christ. As people who were broken. People who were under curse. People now justified and healed through faith in His name. When we come back to our study of Acts in the new year, we will, we will pick up that idea of what does it mean to believe in His name. But for now, understand simply this. That if you receive Jesus Christ as He is presented to you by the apostles, and if you rest upon Him for your salvation, then all that He has accomplished as the servant of the God is now your inheritance. And if you have been a believer for a long time, but you have maybe forgotten. Maybe maybe let these things slip to the back of your mind. Set your hope afresh on all that is yours in Christ. And if you are here this morning and you have never believed on him, see him for who he is. He is the servant of God. And there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. He is the one who brings healing. He is the one who makes all things new. Receive and rest upon him even this morning. And all that is His becomes yours. Because salvation is through faith in His name. And because salvation is through faith in Him, through the glorified Son, and because we know who He is by the Apostle's sure testimony. That's one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace. We ask that you would be with us even this morning. As we hear these things, Father, give us ears to truly hear. Give us hearts to believe. Give us grace to receive. And grant that we might rest upon him and receive his salvation. Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. And for his name's sake, amen.